Hello, fellow teachers and students of the scriptures. Welcome to Teaching with Power. I'm Ben Wilcox, and I want to thank you for joining me this week for our study of just one chapter. But but what a chapter it is. John chapter 1. I love the Gospel of John. I I love all the Gospels. How can you not? But, But John's approach is so distinctive, different, that studying it is an experience unlike any of the others. And we'll talk about why in just a minute here. But before we get going, let me remind you that one of my major goals with this channel is to help teachers. And a little advice here for those that may be interested in using some of the ideas here or the materials I have available for teachers in your own lessons. Please don't feel like you need to do exactly what I do with the lessons here or that you need to cover all the things that I cover. Uh, You may not have time to do that, but the hope is that you can take the ideas and the insights that connect most with you or that you feel your particular students need, and then just edit out the rest. Feel free to adapt the materials to your own style, your own situation. Uh, For example, if you use the PowerPoint slides that I make, realize that a YouTube video is a little different from a lesson. And there may be some slides that you don't even use, or some things that you feel you want to add. I'm totally fine with that, and encourage it even. So add things, delete things, edit them to your own personality and style. And with that said, if you're interested in the materials, uh, teachingwithpower.com is going to have the links to those resources. A subscription service is also available that allows you to get all the materials that I make each week, automatically uploaded to a Dropbox folder that I I give you access to. And uh, a link to that service is in the video description below. And one more thing. For those of you that have purchased subscription bundles from me in the past, if you're starting to get notifications in Dropbox that you're running out of space and they want you to purchase more data, don't feel you need to do that unless you're using Dropbox for a bunch of your other personal files and materials. But if it's just for teaching with power, what you should do is make sure that you have all the materials from those folders that you want to keep uh, downloaded to your personal files and out of the Dropbox folders, and then just email me and I'll remove your access to those particular folders, which should give you plenty of room for the new ones this year. There's no need to keep your access to those older folders because those courses of study are complete and there won't be any more uploads added to them in the future. So with that said, I invite you to grab your scriptures and your marking pencils. It's time to dig deep. And I'd like to begin this week with a little bit of background on the Gospel of John itself. It's unique amongst the four that we're going to find in the New Testament, in the sense that where the other three share and overlap a lot of the same material, The Gospel of John is about 92% exclusive, meaning you only get an account of it here in his book. And that's why Matthew, Mark, and Luke are sometimes called the synoptic Gospels, whereas John's account stands by itself. And that's probably because it was written after the other three. So John didn't feel a need to cover all the events that the others already had. And he also has a specific audience in mind, where Matthew's chosen audience is the Jews and Luke's is the Gentiles. 
John's is the saints of the church themselves, those that have already been converted, which is perhaps why I love it so much. I relate to that. I have a testimony of Christ. I feel that I've chosen to be one of his disciples. So John assumes that about his readers, and instead of introducing us to Christ and his history and his teachings, he's seeking to strengthen, intensify, and fortify our faith in Christ. One thing you might notice about the Gospel of John is that it includes longer and more complete discourses of the Savior, and more detailed conversations between Jesus and individuals which is really fantastic because you get a better sense of the way that Christ spoke to people. People such as Nicodemus, the Samaritan woman at the well, certain members of the Twelve Apostles at the Last Supper, and others. The Gospel of John focuses on Jesus' Judean ministry rather than the things that he did and taught in Galilee. And a large portion of the Gospel of John covers things that the Savior did and taught during the last week of his mortal life. Therefore, you really get to know Christ in his role as Redeemer and Savior by studying John. John is is especially going to help us to get to know who Jesus is, his character, his personality, his nature. Whenever I study the Gospel of John, I always feel like I know him, Christ, better. And I love him all the more because of it. And with that said, without any further ado, let's get into John chapter 1. As an icebreaker, I might show the following pictures. Uh, the other day, a fellow teacher sent me a link to this website that has a, a compilation of the funniest answers that teachers had gathered from students uh, from the tests that they'd given over the years. And I think they're hilarious. So uh, let me just show you a couple of these. So this first one, you know, that that's correct, right? <laughs> and then what ended in 1896? Well, 1895, obviously. To change centimeters to meters, you, oh, you just take out the centi. And, and there you go. You've got it. Where was the American Declaration of Independence signed? At the bottom, of course. John Hancock would agree. Uh, I love this one. Uh, Name these 2D shapes. And so what did they do? They named them. Jade, Charlotte, Charlie, Sophia. Uh, Circle the smallest number. And yeah, it looks like they did, but... They didn't get them correct, did they? And then finally, I I do love this one. Uh, The note from the teacher says, Jackie, you can't just white out a question that you don't want to answer. So she's she's taken white out and and covered the last question. Anyway, I do do get a kick out of those. But uh, typically in the church, we place a lot of emphasis, myself included, on asking questions which is definitely important and appropriate. I mean, the restoration of the church came about because a young man was willing to ask God a question. We're encouraged by Moroni at the end of the Book of Mormon to ask God if it's true. And right now in the church's seminary program, 
A new initiative has been implemented where we spend time teaching and training our students on what they should do when they have gospel questions and doubts. But today we're going to flip the script a little bit. And I'd like to talk about becoming answerers as well as questioners. Perhaps we've spent so much time focused on our questions and on asking that we forget that we're meant to give answers too. We're not only to receive answers from God, but to give answers back. If this life is a test, then the answers we give are going to be key in determining our eternal destiny. So hopefully, we'll be a bit more careful in the way we answer those questions than those students that we've just taken a look at. And I find it fascinating that the first three words that Jesus Christ utters in the Gospel of John are a question. What is that question? You're going to find it in John chapter 1, verse 38. And the question is, what seek ye? Hmm. That is the fundamental question, isn't it? Right from the get-go, Christ wants us to consider that essential question. What do you want out of life? What is it that you most desire? What are you looking for? And could you take a moment to ponder your answer to that question? Because I can't answer it for you. And a caution here. Be careful that you answer Jesus' question and not the one that the adversary usually likes to sneak in. They sound similar, but have very different implications. Satan comes along and he asks, what do you want? And I feel that there's a subtle yet significant difference between those two questions. What seek ye and what do you want? Seek implies effort on our part. Want implies ease and appeals to our natural man. And you know, the adversary only has money, pleasure, power, and pride to offer. He even tried that approach on Jesus in the wilderness. But those things are mere substitutes or inferior replacements for what our souls really need. What I believe we are all truly seeking for. So how do you answer that question? Truth? Peace? Success? Love? I imagine that most of us would probably answer along the lines of, uh, I just want to be happy, Lord. I want to feel good about myself. I want to feel good about my life and my direction. Well, Jesus has a response and an invitation to us. However we answer that question. In the context of John chapter 1, Jesus asks our question of John himself and his friend Andrew, who have just been told by John the Baptist to behold the Lamb of God, as he points to Jesus. And so they start to follow him. And Jesus turns and asks our question here, what seek ye? Now they're not exactly sure how to answer that question. And so they just ask him where he lives. And that is going to prompt what we might call the Great Invitation. And it's yet another three simple words. Jesus just says, Come and see. 
It's as if Christ is saying, not to just John and Andrew, but to you and I. If you're seeking joy, love, peace, and truth, then come, follow me, and you shall have all that you seek. And John and Andrew do. They do just that. Verses 39 through 41. He saith unto them, Come and see. They came and saw where he dwelt, and abode with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first findeth his own brother Simon, and saith unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. Well, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall that day in Jesus' house. I'd love to know what he said and taught them that evening. Whatever it was, when they leave, they're convinced that they have found the Christ, and they go out and spend the rest of their lives inviting others to come and see as well. I feel that this little exchange between John, Andrew, and Christ acts as a perfect microcosm of what John is hoping will happen with you and I as the readers of his testimony. Uh, This is what happened to me, he's saying, and it's what I want to have happen to you. I want you to come to the same conclusion. In fact, near the end of his gospel, he comes out directly and tells us why he wrote this book. Why did he write it? According to John 20, verse 31, But these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. To help us believe in Christ then, John is going to help us to come and see him. It's a major theme that we're going to find all over the Gospel of John. That metaphor of seeing is going to come up over and over again. And seeing here is given in the context of recognizing, understanding, and following Christ. Verses 1 through 18 of John chapter 1 contain his introduction to this being that he wants us to come and see. So what I want you to look for are the things that John most wants us to see or know about Jesus. And a quick note here. We're going to want to read these verses directly from the Joseph Smith translation in the appendix of our Bibles. There's enough changes to the original text that we're going to have a much better understanding of what John is saying if we read it there. So study verses 1 through 19. And to aid in this study, you could use the following handout. Now we know that Jesus is given many, many titles in the scriptures. He played many roles and embodied numerous qualities. So what I have here is a large list of various titles or characteristics of Christ. And as you study, circle the ones that John seems to be highlighting here. Now to be sure, all of these titles are legitimate titles of Christ, but but we're looking for the ones that John wants us to focus on here in his introduction. And let's go through the answers together. Just look at verse 1. How does John begin? In the beginning. Does that phrase sound familiar to you? Where else have we heard that? 
That's how Genesis starts. But this, in the beginning, is going to predate even that one. So he's going to introduce us to the pre-mortal Christ. And what's the first thing we learn about Christ's role in the pre-mortal world? In the beginning was the gospel preached through the Son. And the gospel was the Word, and the Word was with the Son, and the Son was with God, and the Son was of God. And what's the very first thing we see Jesus doing? Preaching. Preaching the Word, or the gospel. John first introduces us to Christ as teacher. And I I love that. For obvious reasons, Jesus, first and foremost, was a teacher. So we can circle that one. He was, is, and always will be a teacher of God's truth. Christ taught the gospel even before he was born. No wonder he's had such a gift for it during his mortal life. And I think that's a great message for all you teachers out there. Of all the professions that Christ could have come as, He chose to come as a teacher. And John wants us to know something else about him in that first verse. There's a special relationship shared between Christ and his Father. We're going to want to keep an eye out for capitalized titles in this section. Jesus Christ was not only a son of God, and we're all sons and daughters of God, but the Son, capital S, So let's circle that title here. And why does he get that capital S before he's ever even born? From other scriptures, we know that Christ was the first created spirit child of our heavenly parents. That's why we sometimes refer to him as our older brother. And just as we saw in the Old Testament, the firstborn was often given a special responsibility, birthright a position of leadership in the family. Therefore, Jesus Christ stands as a member of the Godhead and the leader of the spirit family of this world under God's direction. Verse 3, All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made which was made. Jesus Christ is the creator of all things. We can circle that title now. If we want to get a better idea of the character of Christ, just take a look at the world around you. All that beauty, all that complexity and color and order and diversity came through Christ. We can see his divine fingerprints on everything that we see in the natural world. And how can we not admire and desire to follow a being who could create something like that. We admire great artists by what they create. Christ was the original artist, and all artists since have drawn inspiration from his original creations, the world and the universe around us. Now take a look at verses 4 and 5. In him was the gospel, and the gospel was the life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in the world, and the world perceiveth it not. All right, we got we got a lot going on here. John is establishing some synonymous terms. What are they? Gospel, 
which we've already established is a synonym for word, and then life and light. They're all the same idea, just different terms to help us understand what it is that Christ preaches. He preaches the gospel, the word, the life, the light. Gospel means good news. So he's going to teach the good news of God's plan, the good news of God's mercy, the good news of his atoning sacrifice, the good news of our immortality and potential to obtain eternal life. His message would be life. It would bring vitality, purpose, and happiness to all that will hear and believe it. And his message would be light. It would bring guidance, clarity, comfort to all who decide to abide by it. And all of those things were where? In him. They didn't just come from him. They were in him. That's why God sent his son, because his life would be an embodiment of all that he preached. He would truly live the gospel. Because the gospel is life. It is light. Jesus Christ's example would shine throughout eternity. So we can't separate the man from his message, the God from his gospel, the light from its source. And that's why you see in these verses that Christ actually becomes these titles. He doesn't just teach them. He embodies them. So in verses 7, 8, and 9, Jesus is referred to as the light. So we can circle that title now. Is it any wonder then that Jesus is going to say later in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. That's why he'll introduce himself to the Nephites at Bountiful through the intense darkness that surrounded them. I am the light and the life of the world. And verse 9 goes a bit further and tells us that Jesus is the true light, which lighteth every man who cometh into the world. So here we learn that Jesus is the source of what we refer to as the light of Christ, a light that everyone who comes into this world is affected by. Some might call it conscience or an innate sense of right and wrong. But we know that the source of that knowledge comes from Christ himself. John wants us to know that Christ is not only the light that we must see, but the light by which we see and know everything else. He's the light by which we live. Because without him, we walk in darkness. In verse 16, we see him become the Word. Capital W now. He's not just teaching it. He is it. He is God's word, God's message. Talked a little bit about that a few weeks ago as I was introducing the New Testament. We don't just follow a rule book, a policy manual, or a checklist. We follow a person, a being. And following a being is different from just following rules or commandments. We seek to follow the word. There's yet another capitalized title that we find for Christ in verse 14. Christ was the only begotten. What does that mean? 
Let's read both verses 13 and 14 for that answer. He was born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the same word was made flesh, and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So John wants us to know that Christ was born a bit differently from the rest of us. His birth didn't come about as the result of the will of man, but the will of God. And uh, I almost hate to do this. Uh, It seems a bit crass, but to try to explain the nature of, of Christ with the pie chart. But it does help me to understand the difference between Christ's birth and ours. I mean, we're all divine and eternal in part. We're all the children of our Heavenly Father and our Heavenly Mother. They're the parents of our spirits. We share that with Jesus Christ. He too was created by our heavenly parents. But our earthly mother and fathers are the parents of our bodies. So we are all at least 50% immortal and divine. But Jesus' earthly father was also heavenly father. So again, I hate to put it this way, to quantify divinity, but he was 75% divine, in a sense, then. But I think that can help us to, to comprehend why he's called the only begotten Son of God. That's what made Jesus different from us. So, from his mortal mother, he inherited the power and the ability to die. But from his immortal father, he inherited the ability to take up his life again. Verse 114. There's also something else from verse 14 that I want to point out. We learn of two of his greatest qualities here. Jesus was the personification of many qualities and attributes. But what two does John emphasize? He is full of grace and truth. John wants us to know that he is forgiving, merciful, understanding, and compassionate, full of grace. And he's a being of wisdom and fact and a possessor of knowledge of things as they really are, as they were, and as they are to come. He's full of truth. So there we have it. John has just given us a much deeper and more meaningful comprehension of who Christ is. And hopefully we see him better now. But that's not all John is trying to accomplish here. He's hoping that this seeing will have an effect on us. What is John's hope? See if you can find it in verses 7, 12, and 16. What is it? To believe in him. Believe on his name. Receive him. And do we? Do we believe in Christ? Do we truly have a conviction that Jesus is everything that John has just told us he is? Because there were and continue to be many people who don't believe these things. There are many in the world who perceiveth it not. Verse 5. Who know him not. Verse 10. And who receive him not. Verse 11. Which side do you fall on? Because we can choose to ditch the classroom of the great teacher 
or we can choose to sit at his feet as his pupils. We can see the world as some giant cosmic accident, or we can see it as the masterpiece of the divine creator. We can choose to walk in the darkness of the opinions and the philosophies and the manipulations of men, or we can walk in the light of Christ. We can consider Jesus to be a mere historical figure or a great moral teacher, or we can see him as the very Son of God, the only begotten of the Father. But but if we do, if we do decide to come and see or believe and receive Christ, what's John's promise to us? What will be the results? See what you can find in the following verses. 12, 16, 17, and 18. Well, in verse 12, we become the sons and daughters of God. And that means more than just being spiritually created by our heavenly parents. We become the sons and daughters of God uh, in Christ, born again as children of Christ, children of the covenant, both sons and daughters of a heavenly father and heavenly mother, but also children of the father of our faith, Jesus Christ, and his symbolic spouse, the mother of our faith, his church. Those are the sons and daughters he gives us power, it's a good word, to become. Because there is great power in it. In verse 16, we receive of his fullness. A fullness of what? Everything that he has and is. A fullness of light. A fullness of life. A fullness of power. A fullness of glory. A fullness of truth. But most importantly, even immortality and eternal life through his grace. We can return to God's presence and not only live with him, but live like him. Verse 17, life and truth come through Jesus Christ, but not just any kind of life, endless life. And in verse 18, a promise that we can be saved, saved from darkness, from ignorance, from misery. So can you see why John 20, 31 is such a great summation of John's purpose. These first 18 verses are basically an expansion and a in-depth version of that verse. But these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. So, what seek ye? What's your answer? Do you seek light and truth and salvation and grace and power and life? Yes. Do you know where to find them? John found them. Andrew found them. And they found them by going to Christ's house and hearing him. So if you wish those same blessings, come and see. The truth then, maybe simply put, all that we truly seek in life can be found in Jesus Christ. To liken the scriptures, which of the titles of Christ that we've discussed today is the most meaningful to you?
and why. And as you have sought to come and see Christ in your own life, what have you found? And then one final idea here. You may wish to conclude a study of this portion of John chapter 1 by singing, I believe in Christ. Now, as you continue to study John chapter 1, you'll find that it contains even more titles of Christ. So if you wish, you could use the same handout that we've used earlier to continue a discussion of who Jesus is and his roles here in mortality. Can you find any other titles of Christ in verses 20 through 51? The easiest way to do this is to scan through those verses and look for capital letters. And then you can circle those titles uh, on our handout as well. And what other ones do we find here? In verses 29 and 36, we have the title, The Lamb of God. In verse 38, Rabbi and Master, which, which mean the same thing. In verse 41, we have Messiah or Messiah and the Christ. And in verse 49, we see Nathanael also refer to him as rabbi, and then the son of God, and then the king of Israel. And then Jesus Christ, in verse 51, refers to himself as the son of man. And I'm not going to go into detail on the significance and meaning of each of those titles, but I invite you to ponder them. What do they reveal about the nature and mission of Jesus Christ? Which one of those titles is your favorite and why? To continue, though, another icebreaker activity that you could try. I invite my students to have a little conversation with another person in the class. I divide them up into pairs and ask them to think about one of their favorite places to go on vacation and to consider why they love it so much. It could be a particular lake or camping spot that they go to every year as a family. It could be an amusement park that they love to visit, a beach, a national park, an island they've been to on a cruise, a country or a city that they visited, anything like that. A place that they love to go and see. Now have them turn to their partners and try to convince them why they should also want to go and visit that place. What makes it so wonderful? What makes it worthwhile? Why should they also desire to travel there? And after both partners have had a chance to do this, you can explain. Now, you could spend hours trying to convince that other person why your place is worth visiting. But what might be the best way to help them really know what makes it so special? What's the only way that they could truly understand what that place is like? They need to see it for themselves. It's the only way they can really know why the effort to get there would be worthwhile. You could invite them to come with you. You could encourage them to go themselves. You could say, you know what? You just need to go, and trust me, it'll be worth it. And it's the most natural thing in the world for us as people when we've had an amazing experience, when we've seen something remarkable or experienced an exciting event, to want to share that with people around us, especially our friends and family. 
I mean, what, what do you do the next day after you've seen a great movie or eaten at a fantastic restaurant? You try to convince others to go and see or, or try it too. It's also one of the funnest things to do as a parent, showing my kids all my favorite movies, taking them on hikes and backpacking trips that I loved as a kid, going with them for the first time on my favorite rides at Disneyland and seeing their eyes light up. It's the closest thing to experiencing that thing again for the first time yourself, to see it through the eyes of someone you love. This desire to share comes naturally to us. When we've experienced something great, we want others to experience it too. And that idea leads us to the next great principle that I feel John chapter 1 can teach us. I began this lesson by telling you about John and Andrew's experience with finding Christ. And do you remember who it was that pointed them to Christ? It was John the Baptist. And a quick note here. You'll notice that verses 6 through 8 and then verses 20 through 34 deal specifically with the mission and the testimony of John the Baptist. He's a major player in John's introduction. But I'm not going to go into as much depth on him and those verses this week because the role and the teachings of John the Baptist are going to be one of the major focuses of our lesson next week. But I would like to point him out as a powerful example of our next principle here in this chapter. He, John the Baptist, had already come to see Christ as the Messiah and Savior and Light and Only Begotten and all the other wonderful titles that we've looked at already. So what did he do? Did he just sit at home and revel in the fact that he knew who the Messiah was? Did he walk around smugly content that he was privileged enough to be the bearer of this great secret? No, when when the time was right, he spread the word. He told everyone about it. He triumphantly proclaims as he points to Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God. That was his version of come and see. And so they do. And as a result, they too are converted and become disciples of Christ. So what's the principle, the truth here? And you finish it for me. Once we have found Christ, we should... And I would complete that sentence with, we should invite others to come and see him too. So now can you find... Any other examples of that truth in the remaining verses of John chapter 1? And we find it in verses 41 and 42. It says that Andrew first findeth his own brother Simon and saith unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And then Peter meets Jesus and becomes his disciple too. We also see it in verse 45, after Philip has become a disciple of Christ. Philip findeth Nathanael, and saith unto him, We have found him, of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And then this interaction with Nathanael is going to reflect a common worldly attitude or reaction we might run into when we invite others to come unto Christ. 
initially, Nathaniel's a good example of those people John mentioned earlier in the chapter that would comprehend him not and know him not and receive him not. And why won't they receive him? Nathaniel says, can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? That's a common worldly response. Prejudice, doubt, skepticism. Nazareth? Why would the Messiah come out of Nazareth? It's a no-name town. Jerusalem, maybe, but this little backwater Galilean hamlet? Uh, not likely. It's reminiscent of a lot of people's reaction to Joseph Smith's calling as a prophet. An uneducated farm boy from upstate New York? Palmyra? A prophet from Palmyra? Really? Or... You guys believe that the new Jerusalem is going to be built in Missouri? Or prophets of God, the true church, in Salt Lake City? This small city in the middle of the American West? Do our preconceptions and expectations of Christ and his gospel sometimes hold us back from really finding the truth? We've got to be careful not to put on those blinders. But how does Philip react to this initial resistance from his friend? Does he get offended and walk away? Does he sit there and try to reason him into discipleship? Does he argue with Philip's incredulity and cynicism? Does he give up? No. What does he do, and how can this be an example to us in our efforts to invite others? He just simply says, come and see. The same thing Jesus said to John and Andrew. And he brings his friend to Christ. I think that's a great pattern for us to follow. Nobody is ever going to be reasoned into the church. You're never going to argue a person into conversion. We don't threaten. We don't beg. We just invite. We say, come and see. Just come to church. See what you think. Just read a portion of the Book of Mormon. Give it a chance. You may be surprised. Come to this fireside with me. Attend this institute class. We'd love to have you join us for this youth activity tomorrow night. Come and see. What's the phrase that sits below the name of the church on every placard of every church building throughout the world? Visitors, welcome. This is another way of saying, come and see. So two questions to stop and consider here to help us liken the scriptures. First, what is your discipleship story? What were the circumstances that initially led you to come and see Jesus? And who do you feel you could bless with your testimony of the Savior? Will you pray for and look for an opportunity to invite them? Now, luckily for Nathaniel, he doesn't allow his initial doubt to hold him back from at least giving his friend a chance. And he does come, and he sees Christ. And what's the result of that willingness to respond to the invitation? Before we read these final verses, I have one more fill-in-the-blank truth that I'd like you to consider. If I'm willing to come and see Christ, then what? Now read verses 47 through 51 and tell me how you would complete that sentence. What happens? The first thing Jesus does when he sees Nathanael is call out, 
Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no guile. And Nathanael asks with a bit of astonishment, Whence knowest thou me? Or, How do you know who I am? And Jesus reveals something about Nathanael that only Nathanael would have known. He says, Before that Philip called thee, when thou wast under the fig tree, I saw thee. So he gives Nathanael a small spiritual experience, so to speak. Nothing grand or overly miraculous, but something personal and meaningful to Nathanael. And that's enough for him. He believes. I love that about him. No guile indeed. He believes easily and doesn't allow his initial bias to quench his faith. And so he straightway calls out, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God. Thou art the King of Israel. He's already ready to accept Jesus as the Master. So how could we complete our principle here? Here's one possible way. If I am willing to come and see Christ, then he will show me his power. And is that true? What about you? Have you ever had a Nathaniel-like experience with the Savior? A small yet significant manifestation of his power in your life? An answer to a prayer? A minor miracle? A small touch of heaven that you can't bring yourself to explain away as coincidence? And I, I do love that, that his experience was such a small thing. It's not some huge miracle or healing or, or parting of the Red Sea kind of display. Minor, but personal. And I believe that God will provide all of us with these kinds of experiences if we're willing to give him the chance to respond to the invitation, to exercise a particle of faith, or no more than desire to believe. For me, it was an answer to a prayer while trying to learn how to swim. For my dad, it was God listening to his pleas on behalf of a beloved pet rat. For my grandma, it was protection from an attacking dog. And none of those things are, are grand in scale. They were huge to those who experienced them. I'm grateful for a God that's willing to confirm faith personally and powerfully to those who respond to his call. And then how does Jesus respond to Nathaniel's declaration? I love it. This is so great. I'm sure he said it with a big smile on his face. So pleased with Nathaniel's easy faith. Jesus answered and said unto him, Because I said unto thee, I saw thee under the fig tree, believest thou? Thou shalt see greater things than these. And he saith unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Hereafter ye shall see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. So in other words, Nathaniel, you believed just because I told you that I saw you under the fig tree? That's enough to convince you? How marvelous. You just wait, though. You're going to see much greater things than that. 
your faith is going to be rewarded with greater and greater manifestations of my spirit. Prepare your soul to see the heavens opened and angels ascending and descending. Oh, buckle up, Nathaniel, because you're going to see things that you never thought possible. And he will, won't he? So perhaps we could add to our principle here. If I'm willing to come and see Christ, then he will show me greater and greater manifestations of his power throughout my life. So are you ready to see some great things in the coming months as we study the life of Christ? Remember that John's principal audience is those who are already disciples of Christ. And this chapter can serve as a reminder of our initial experiences with the divinity of Jesus Christ. But also that there are greater things to come for us, greater manifestations of his power and spirit. Those things are sure to come as we continue to follow him. And hopefully, John has inspired us to go out and invite all to come and see him like we have. To be John's and Andrew's and Philip's ourselves. To go out and find our Peter's and our Nathaniel's. Who will then go out and invite people themselves. That's how this church grows. In ones and twos. As, as we reach out to invite those around us with excitement and humility to come and see. And when they do come, they are sure to see great things. And I testify to you that that principle's true because I've experienced that very thing. God has shown me great things many times over. I've seen Christ's power in small ways and big ways. He's real. His power is real. And I can promise you that if you come to him, you'll see his power as well. There's one more quick point that I'd like to make this week about Jesus Christ and his character before we close. Remember that we're wanting to become even as he is, to receive his image in our countenances. We don't just want to come and see him. We want to see the way he saw. We want Jesus' eyes. So a brief and simple icebreaker here. Do you have a nickname? If you do, what's the story behind it? And with that as an introduction, I just want to show you something about Jesus that I find phenomenal. Use the following handout to look up the listed verses in your scriptures and just take note of what he's doing. What do all these verses have in common? And you'll notice that two of these verses come from John chapter 1. So that's why I like to cover this attribute of the Savior here. So in John 1, 42, what did he decide to call Simon? Cephas, which is by interpretation a stone. Now, now, can you imagine how that must have made Peter feel about Peter? In other places, he calls him the rock. So it's like Jesus comes up and he says, you know what, Simon? I'm not going to call you Simon. I'm going to call you the rock. <laughs> Peter was the rock long before Dwayne Johnson ever came along. And then in John 1, what's the first thing Jesus says to Nathaniel? 
when he meets him. Behold an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. With an exclamation point. And guile means deceitfulness or deception. How would that have made Nathaniel feel about Nathaniel? Aye, there's an honest Israelite. Can you just see Jesus saying that with a big smile on his face? In Mark 3.17, what nickname did he give to James and John? He called them Boanerges, which means the sons of thunder. Which I always felt would be a good name for a pair of tag team professional wrestlers or luchadors. But wow, can, can you just see those two men standing up a little bit straighter after receiving that kind of compliment from the very Son of God? Wow, I am a son of thunder. Don't you think they'd feel more capable, more powerful, to know that Christ had that kind of confidence in them? And what did he say to the Roman centurion who came to plead for the life of his servant in Matthew 8, 10? Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. Ah, that's a man who has faith. You have more faith than all the people in Israel. How would that have made him feel? And then in Matthew 15, 28, what did he say to the Canaanite woman? Oh, woman, great is thy faith. There are many other examples in the Gospels of Jesus doing just that, building people up. John is going to come to be known as John the Beloved. Of all the people in Jericho that Jesus could have decided to have lunch with, he chose the despised publican Zacchaeus and reminded everyone that he also is a son of Abraham. He defended the woman who came in to wash his feet as a woman who loved much, though everyone else in that room saw her as a sinner. And on and on. We've just learned a magnificent thing about our Savior's character. What's our truth here? Jesus always sought to build people up with nicknames, praise, and compliments. We can too. To help my students apply this lesson themselves, I like to give them a little challenge. To go out and follow the example of Jesus in that thing. To think of someone in their life that, that they think may need a little encouragement right now a relationship that could do with some strengthening, a person they know that doesn't seem to get much attention or sits alone in class, at church, or at lunch, and to think of a sincere, genuine compliment that they could give that person, and then do it. Go tell them that thing. And then just sit back and watch what happens. How did they react? Did it make a difference? And how did it make you feel? And as a teacher, you may want to follow up on this in a later lesson. Praise is a superpower. It blesses in both directions. It's like the gift that keeps on giving. A perpetual motion machine that just puts off energy forever. I still remember a compliment that a certain elder gave me on my mission. He said, you know, Elder Wilcox, you're the kind of guy who... And then he gave me this incredible compliment. I've never forgotten it.
to this day. I still get mileage out of what he said. I'm sure he probably wouldn't even remember saying it, but I do. It made me want to live up to it, or work even harder to reflect it. It made me a better person, and continues to do so. Jesus always sought to build people up. He was a builder. Yes, he was a carpenter, and I'm sure he built many a table or chair or cabinet. But what he really excelled at was building souls, building people. And he spent his life doing just that. He understood the power of words and praise to lift and encourage. He saw the rock in the Simon. He saw the Israelite with no guile in the Nathaniel. He saw the beloved in the John, the son of Abraham in the Zacchaeus, the sons of thunder in the James and John. May we do the same kind of thing. Let's go out and build. And uh, that's, that's going to conclude our lesson this week. I hope that you gained something meaningful from, from John chapter 1. Scriptures are just amazing, aren't they? And if you felt like this lesson helped you in any way, I encourage you to go out and share it with someone that you feel it could help. Invite them to come and see Jesus. And with that said, I want to thank you for watching. Now get out there and teach with power.